So I've got three questions for you, and they're on the screen. Three questions as we start tonight. You don't have to answer them out loud. It's not a super pop quiz. Chill out. It's all right. First question, where does God live? Where does God live? If you're like me, uh, growing up in church, you'd walk into a sanctuary, and maybe you had a good old Baptist grandpa that said, we're going to God's house, y'all. We're going to God's house. God lives in that church right over there in East Dallas where I went. Or maybe where does God live? You're like a nature person. God's in nature or this. It's an open-ended question. And uh, you've probably answered it a lot of different ways throughout your life. Where does God live? Second question, what does God think of you? What does God think of you? Man, this may change for me on my best day three times a day. What does God think of you? Boy, especially when I was growing up in church, God would not be happy with me a lot of the time. Sometimes he would, and sometimes he wouldn't. What does God think of you? What does God think of you? And then I think the follow-up to that second question is our third. It says, do you think God wants to spend time with you? There's a song in the 90s, what if God was one of us? Well, God was one of us. We say in this church, his name was Jesus. And, you know, what kind of people did Jesus spend time with? And if Jesus were here today in Garland, Texas, would he be spending time with you, with us? Would he be seated here in Spring Creek Church? Would he be a part of Providence Community Church? Would we be a part of what he's up to is probably the better question. Not is Jesus up to what we're up to. Are we up to what Jesus is up to? I think these questions are important. Where does God live? What does God think of you? And do you think God wants to spend time with you? If these aren't questions that are top of your mind today, they have been at some part of your life, I imagine. And so what if I asked these three questions of the child version of yourself. I've got a three-year-old, beautiful red-headed Emma back there, and I'll bet if I asked Emma these questions when I got home, when we get home tonight, I bet her answers may be a lot different than the answers that I would say even. What does God live, and what does he think of you, and does he want to spend time with you? I'd imagine a three-year-old answer, or the child answer that you would have given is maybe different from the one today. Hey, we're going to come back to these questions. I want to answer at least the first one. Rather, Paul does in our text tonight in Ephesians. Would you get a Bible or swipe on your phone to Ephesians chapter 2? We're going to be looking in verses 19 to 22. And at least these four verses for the next several minutes will answer that first question, which is where does God live? And the answer may surprise you, or maybe it won't, but let's see what Paul has to say with regard to where does God live. Let's read, if you're there, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Now you notice that first word, consequently, Consequently, whoops, that probably means that there is a lot of stuff before this that we ought to know about. Well, tonight is part two of a message called One in Christ. 
And last time, as we see on the slide, we saw that all the stuff that came before the verse we just read, in Christ, in Christ, there is no them. In Christ, there is no them, there is only us. There is only us. In Christ Jesus, we say, the body of Christ, there is no so much Catholic, Methodist, Baptist, or Pentecostal, or community church. There is no them, there is only us. Why is this so? We talked about two weeks ago, the cross broke down the barriers that we've built up so that Jesus could build one new people for God. What's happened in the chapter before us, before the consequently we just read, Paul says, guess what? The answer to the question two times ago, who are God's people, for centuries it was Israel, but guess what? God has opened the floodgates to the world and he has made Israel and Gentiles the others one. Jesus is not interested in building many people of God. Jesus is all about building one people for God. So when we drive down the street and see community, Baptist, Methodist, Orthodox, Episcopalian, Catholic, we see whoops. And we wonder about things when Jesus prays, Father, that they would be one. We don't look like one, but the reality is in Christ there is no them, there's only us. And the cross broke down the barriers between Jew, God's people for centuries, and everybody else who were not God's people for centuries. You with me? It's okay, if it doesn't make sense, you can go back and listen to One in Christ, part one. This is the sequel. So tonight, we're not gonna talk about the things that Christ has broken down. Tonight, we're gonna talk about those things that he is building up. And it answers that question tonight, where does God live? In our section, our passage tonight, we see the church is God's dwelling place on earth earth. Where does God live? The church. For better or for worse, good, bad, and ugly, little old us. His dwelling place we're going to see is us. So he broke down the barriers and he's building. The church is built by Christ and it's united by the Spirit. God's people, watch, are God's temple. God's people are God's temple. And so then, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, also members of his household. Who's the you? Who were the foreigners? Who were the strangers? That, we saw, was the everybody else, right? Because the Jews were God's people. But he says to this new church in Ephesus, and to us today who, hello, aren't Jewish, right? Unless you are, forgive me. He says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. This is the resolution to the problem we saw last time in verse 12. What did he say in verse 12? Remember that at that time you were separate. You were excluded. You were foreigners to the covenant. And you were without God in the world. That's a problem. Here's the solution. 
in Christ, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens. Here is your passport. Here is your citizenship. Welcome to the kingdom of God. It's beautiful. Come on inside. And we see right here, we are fellow citizens with God's people. But even more than that, we're not just citizens with the passport. We're family with a birth certificate. Hello? Man, now I do sound Baptist. That's, I'm like, I've said Baptist a few times. I'm saying like, amen. Hello, y'all with me? Glory, hallelujah. We're family. This is huge. We're family. We're members of God's household. What's it like to be part of the same household? We gotta remember the context here in Ephesus and the churches in that region. When you've got Jew and Gentile who operated separate for a long time, this household is a Brady Bunch household. Here's a story of a lovely Israel who is bringing up lots of very lovely, does it start with girls or boys, Brady Bunch? Girls, and then along comes this man named Brady with Gentiles, and we've got a Brady Bunch household. But if you're paying attention to this letter of Ephesians in chapter 1, he says, in Christ, you're not only one. Chapter 1, he says, you're adopted, you're family. And so even a Brady Bunch family that was fused together with separate groups in the same household, Marsha, Jan, and, oh man, Peter, what? Cindy? Who are the boys' names? I, this is why you need to prepare your sermons, folks. <laughs> the family in the same household, though Two, now one, enjoy the same inheritance, the same privileges, and the same love in an ideal world, right? But in the church, it's this mix, it's this family of different groups, now one. It's a Brady Bunch household. We are family, fellow citizens. This is good news and it solves the problem that Paul introduced in part one or the earlier part of this chapter. But he's not content to just stick with a family metaphor. Look what he's going to do. He's going to shift the metaphor from the family or the household to the building. Okay, Not just the home, but the house. Let's see what he says in the next verse. Here's God's temple, right? So this household is built and it's built on the what? foundation. What's the first thing we did in El Paso when we were building that pantry? Did we start painting the siding and doing roof? I would have if I was doing it, but thank God Robbie, Vaughn, Robbie, Robert Vaughn was there to help us. We started with the foundation. We started with the cinder blocks and Steve and I kind of, you know, scraped it out and set it down and he was, you know, muscle man lifting up the foundation. We got to start with the foundation because if you get the foundation wrong, you're totally hosed. It's not going to hold those hundreds of six-pound cans. You start with the foundation. What's the foundation of God's building now? Here he says the apostles and prophets. So Sunday school folk, who are the apostles? The apostles are really the sent ones. They're the witnesses to the risen Jesus. The apostles are sent to proclaim the good news of the risen King Jesus and his reign over all the earth. And so the apostles like the disciples, the apostles like Paul, the apostles and many, many others that Paul will mention in places like Romans, all of these apostles are going throughout the world and they're saying, good news, Jesus is King. 
They're building the church through the gospel. And not only them, the prophets. Now here's tricky because when you hear prophets, what are you thinking of right now? You're thinking of the Old Testament, aren't you? But here, almost unequivocally, and we'll see in the next chunk of Ephesians, he's talking about New Testament prophets. Now, in a church like ours, we don't really talk about prophets or prophesying. But the deal is, in the first century church, and I believe, you know, throughout the centuries' churches, even though we don't do it here, there are prophets who hear God and they speak what they hear. And it may not be as wild and crazy as you think. But prophets, some people have a gift that is basically an exhortation, an encouragement, and it's always about building up the church. These aren't Old Testament prophets. These are New Testament prophets. And they are going out in the first century. You see it all throughout the book of Acts. You with me? And they're preaching the gospel. They're building up the church. They're preaching the gospel. They're starting a church. Prophets building the church. They are the foundation Now, of course, prudent Bible folk, isn't Jesus the foundation of the church? Paul says as much in other letters in the New Testament. And that is true. Jesus is the foundation, and he's using apostles and prophets. But we see here, Paul's not going to leave Jesus high and dry. He says Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. Robbie, we just sang in that last song that word cornerstone. That was probably by design. A plus, gold star. The cornerstone is a big, bad stone. They found some in first century you know, remains in Palestine that are 570 tons. So 570 times 2,000, and that's how many pounds these beasts are. And even though Robert Vaughn laid a pretty slick foundation in El Paso, I don't think that Robert Vaughn himself could lift a 57, uh, 570 ton cornerstone. But what they would do with the original temple is they would take these enormous stones, and where would they put these stones? Hint, hint, in the corner. They'd put these things in the corner and like a big bad corner puzzle piece, it would sit there and it would give shape to everything that's got to rise up. If you get that cornerstone wrong, whether it's the Jewish temple of worship or the Ken Kanadabi food pantry in El Paso, if that cornerstone is not lock, so, rock solid in lockstep with all the walls, if you don't get that thing squared off, the building that comes on top of it and bearing the load is going to be a mess. So isn't it good to know that Jesus is a cornerstone for the church with little old us. Isn't it good to know that Jesus, when I've been in places of doubt, when I've been in places racked with fear and anxiety, isn't it good to know that I've seen in my own life, and I will attest to you, Jesus can bear all of your weight. He's strong enough. Jesus is a word spoken. This is what God is like. You can hang all your weight on Jesus. Oh, but I'm not sure about this. Hang your weight on Jesus. Oh, but I'm afraid of this. Hang your weight on Jesus. Oh, but I don't understand this. Hang your weight on Jesus. He's strong enough. And it's the only reason this church that's a Brady Bunch, that's a family, that's little old us, has survived for 2,000 years 
It's not because of yahoos like me screaming at 80 people every week. It's because of Jesus. And it's not just Jesus. There is work with his Father and the Holy Spirit uniting us. And we go on as he's building God's house. He says in verse 21, Paul, in Jesus this cornerstone, the whole building is being joined together. It ain't just getting thrown up with a nail gun in El Paso in 48 hours and then filled the next day. There's care joining the disparate Brady bunch together. The church and the place that Jesus is building, that Jesus is the cornerstone in, is a building that's joined together, and it's not of wood or stone or bricks. It is people. It is people. And the beautiful part is this. A lot of times on the surface, the bricks don't look like they ought to fit together, do they? Because this church, we all kind of look the same, most of us. And what I'm talking about is white, young-ish with apologies to our more seasoned members. I'm not trying to look at anybody in the eye. But when you begin to see God's temple in which we are one in Him, joining together this church in Mexico and this church in South Korea and this group of people in the far recesses of the Amazon and in Asia and people who sing different songs, who may think differently about the Scriptures and this, we have Jesus as a cornerstone and He is active work us together. We ought to have more in common with the single mom or grandmother in Kenya who has Jesus as her cornerstone. We ought to have more in common with her than the person down the street who is not in Christ because we're being joined together. And we're being joined together in a building and it, look, rises to become a what? A holy temple in the Lord. It rises to become a holy temple. Notice, look, it doesn't just say for the Lord, right? It says what? Man, we're all asleep because it's almost 8 o'clock. It says in the Lord. Again, He holds our weight. He is with us. It's rising to become a holy temple in the Lord. There were two temples on the radar of the Ephesian Christians in the first part of God building the church. There was this temple I already alluded to, the Old Testament temple. And the Jewish people would say, yes, a holy temple. I know what a holy temple is. The holy temple is where heaven and earth meet and intersect. And all of a sudden, when you're standing out here at the first century McDonald's, it ain't so holy. But when you step into the gates of the Jewish temple, the second temple that was built after the first one was destroyed, this in some beautiful and really, I, they thought, physical way, the Spirit of God literally dwelt and heaven and earth met in this place. It's the reason why they partied there. They had sacrifices there. They even allowed these other Gentiles to come kind of close-ish like we've talked about. This was the hubbub, the center. Yes, they thought of the holy temple. They thought of this. But that's just one group. 
The rest of the world was no strangers to temples. We talked about it at the very beginning of our series. The Ephesians knew of a big, bad, beautiful temple of Artemis. And if you ask them the question, where does God live, like I asked you, what would they say? Oh yeah, Artemis, man, she lives over there, down Highway 30, right there. It's the seventh wonder of the world, Artemis' temple. If you want to see God, go there. If you're a Jew and you want to see Yahweh, go here. But Paul has flipped the script because in Jesus we're rising to become a holy temple in the Lord. God's people are God's temple. You've heard this said before if you've been around this church. You don't go to church, you are the church. But even beyond the word church, take church out of it. Because right here, what we need to know is this. You are a holy temple. But Adam, I don't feel holy. Well, if you remember the rest of our questions, we're not going to look at them on the screen, but what does God think of you? Well, in Christ, I'll tell you, He's raised you. He's blessed you immeasurably more. He loves you. He's adopted you. And He's made you holy to Him. Well, where does God live? Isn't He far off? Isn't He distant? Isn't He like those Ephesian gods or goddesses where you're afraid of them and they're going to come and get me or I need to go far to get to them? No, Where does God live? He's nearer than you think. We see He's even made His home in you. But it ain't just a you. Let's look at the rest of this verse as we start to wind down. And in Him, that is in Christ, Ephesians, life in Christ. Paul cannot let this go. You're in Christ. But also, we see that We ain't just in Christ. There is some sense that God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit is in us. In Him, you two are being built together. It's not just a you, it's a y'all. It's not just a you, it's a y'all. And you're not just in Christ, what? You're becoming a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. You're becoming a dwelling by which God lives in His Spirit. We are in Christ. We are God's building. We are joined together for better or for worse. And we're not just joined together, Providence Community. We're joined together with Spring Creek. We're joined together with First United Methodist and First Baptist and God help us, St. Joseph's Catholics, which is right over there. Amen? Y'all know I just saw my grandfather walking out of Mass on my way to this church. And you know, if I said he is risen in a few weeks, you know what he'd say? He's risen indeed. I don't care if he's Catholic. The building that God's making, to tie it back to part one, there is no them and us in Christ. The building that God's making should not have any walls inside of it. The building that God's making, His holy temple, unlike the temples of the Jewish temple or the Artemis temple, in God's temple today, in us, you're God's people. If there is walls, Christ is going to knock them down and it may hurt. And there ought not to be any wall on these doors or those doors because as Toby reminded us last week, our first impulse is love. 
our first impulse is handshake, embrace, welcome. Because the building that God's creating ought to be this embassy of God's kingdom that looks more and more inviting and welcoming and God help us, powerful. Why? Because God's spirit is dwelling among us and in the spirit there is unity, not disunity. And so even though we welcome people that may not yet be in Christ, when they come, we're showing them this is a taste of what God's kingdom is like. Yes, even here on Saturday nights. We are a building being built together. Here's on your slides as we close. Life in Christ. What I'm saying is this. Life in Christ means unity with God and other people in Christ. Christ is not divided. It's got to be arms, fingers, toes, legs, shins, thighs, mouths, eyes. We're one. Life in Christ means you're united to Him, but you're also united to everybody else who's in Him. Life in Christ means unity with God and other people in Christ. This is the house in which God chooses to make His home. So where does God live? Well, now in Christ, God's people are God's temple by His Spirit. He's not remote. He's not far. You don't have to go to Him. He is here with you. You just got to be awake to it. God, where are you? I say that. But if I would shut up, what if I heard, I'm right here, man. We need to be awake to the fact that God is in our midst. And it's not just here. It's when we're in the darkest places, he's with you, inviting you. Come to me. Come to me, because I have come to you. So what does God think of you? Christ, he's raised you. He's seated you with him in the heavenly places. He's blessed you beyond measure. He's embracing you with love. Even when you blow it, he's saying, come back, it's okay. Because he paid for all of it, Jesus did, on the cross. He wants restitution. He wants reconciliation. He wants you back. What does he think of you? He wants you. He has showered you with love and grace because that is who he is. So the third question we started our time with, do you think God wants to spend time with you? The thing is, we think, our culture tells us that God is like some supermodel that's playing hard to get. The Ephesians thought Artemis was hard to get. A good crop and fertility is hard to get. But Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, came to us. And his home address is church. If you were to write a letter or postcard to God, like my three-year-old might, wouldn't say North Pole or Baptist Church, it'd say Big C Church. That's God's address today. No longer the temple of old. No longer the Baptist Church I grew up in, except the church as people. Because the building is people. He loves his ugly, beautiful home. He loves it. So are you willing to break down whatever walls you keep putting up in your heart? Are you willing to break down any hostility you feel, God help us, to people in this church? 
and maybe hostility is a strong word. Maybe you're just annoyed with people in this church. You're annoyed with a chair in the living room of God's house. Would we break down the walls? Would we see that he's made his home in us? And would we be a church that's joined together to not just build pantries, but to welcome many others because the building process, as I close, the building process is not finished. We laid a foundation, not a roof, to close it off. We laid a foundation to be built upon, and by God's grace, as his home, would we invite more and more others to be joined with us so that we could rise more and more into a great and holy temple of God. He is with you. He loves you. So let's talk to him and share in the bread and the wine as his house, his people. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much, Abba, for adopting us as sons and daughters. We can cry to you. We can be embraced by you. We can say thank you. We can say help us. We can say anything. We're in such need of your presence and power. Help us be awake to it. Help us in those places where we have walls between each other. Help us in those places where we have walls between you and us. Would the cross of Jesus Christ break down those barriers that we may be joined together by the very Spirit of the living God who dwells even more, I dare say, powerfully in your church today than any of the old temples of old. For we now celebrate the new covenant, the new promise, not just with Israel, but with the new Israel, the world that is in Christ. So as we break the bread, would we remember that Jesus' body was broken so he could break down the walls that divide us? And Lord, as we drink the wine and the juice, Lord, would we be reminded that Jesus' blood was spilled to destroy the wall between us and you, to bring us near. Bless us as we seek you, as we worship. We long for you and your power in our midst. Thank you for being in our midst in this moment now. Amen.